Well, this is a morning that I would just invite you right now to stand for 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's where we'll be reading today. We're going to read through chapter 6, verse 12. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 6, 12, if you're able to stand. We read, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around us, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart. And two milk cows in which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them 
to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. The lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Let's pray. Father, as I was praying before the message, I was praying the Lord's Prayer. And the first thing we say is, Your kingdom come and Your will be done. And as we think about kings and kingdoms, as we go through 1 Samuel, I see here You bringing about Your kingdom despite Your people. Father, so many times we work against You and Your will. We pray today that You would soften our hearts so that we might be used of You to bring You glory and honor and to be about bringing about Your kingdom to our world. Help us to do that. We know that You have died for our sins, that You have risen again, and that You have given us Your Spirit to do those things. So, Father, we pray that You would speak to us today and not I. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it was the second time I met Christy and Lewiston. She tells me that they're not called dates. I don't know why. The second time I met her. This is going to sound like a date to you. We had some dinner, but then we went to watch a movie. A very great romantic movie called Iron Man 2. Um, <laughs> but from our first dates together, we've always liked going to the movies. Well, that was life B.C., before Calvin, uh, before children. Um, since children, we've at times wanted to catch movies, but that involves finding babysitters, and it just doesn't always work. So what's happened then is we usually see a movie coming out to theaters we really want to watch, and then we got to wait a good four to five months for it to come out on DVD, and then we rent it. And last Wednesday, we rented one that we've wanted to watch for quite some time, the movie Harriet. It was about a Harriet Tubman. And uh, I admit I knew hardly anything about her um, outside of her name, and that she was somehow involved with the Underground Railroad for setting slaves free from the South before the Civil War. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, it's relatively clean. There's a little bit of language. There's some hard scenes here and there about men or mean white masters and their slaves, of course. Harriet Tubman is like the epitome of an action hero, it seems like. She, she led expeditions of slaves right out of slave country, many times under the noses of their masters. She never got caught, and she never lost a slave. And she garnered a nickname in the process. Moses. The the people of the South would put up notices, we need to capture Moses. Um, They didn't even know who she was. In fact, many of the South would think that a black woman would be the last person on planet Earth who had been so capable of doing such things. Slavery is a common theme, a common symbol in the Bible. By far, the, the most significant usage of the symbol of slavery is no doubt in the Exodus story. The Israelites, during a famine, they migrated to Egypt. Generations later, they find themselves so numerous that they are enslaved by a pharaoh who did not know the first comers into Egypt. And God chooses a uniquely born Hebrew, one born under an Egyptian abortion policy, in which each and every male Hebrew born was to be put to death upon their birth. 
Moses' mother is able to spare her, spare her son, and then Moses is raised in the Egyptian courts, actually under the Pharaoh's uh, family, until God finally calls Moses and he delivers the Israelites from slavery. The liberation of God's people found in the Exodus story then recurs throughout all of the Bible. And it finds its culmination in the New Testament, the symbolism of bondage and slavery, and then redemption and liberation is epitomized in Christ. That you and I are in bondage and in slavery to our sins. Along with slavery, Paul often used the idea of being dead. There's this strong language in places like Ephesians 2. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you feel the enslavement in here? <laughs> we have no choice. We have our lot. We walk in our lot. We're enslaved to the passions of our flesh. All we do is carry out the desires of our body, our physical hungers and appetites and our mind, our desire to be constantly amused and engaged and numbed and dulled in thinking. This leads us to live a life where our very nature, right, just our, our primal instinct, our default mode, is in life to be nothing but children of wrath. Children of waiting for God's punishment, children who not only fail at doing God would call us to do, but actually are completely, willfully ignorant, oblivious, and probably could care less about what He wants, because we are so enslaved to what we want. And enslaved we are, because ultimately to fulfill our diet desires only brings us rotten fruit. You know, I've never met a drunk a drug addict, a sex addict, a food addict, whoever once said, you know what? I'm completely satisfied now. <laughs> I think I'll just set this addiction of mine aside for the long run now because I'm good. I'm satisfied. Back in the Old Testament, we're, we're given an actual factual history. I want you to hear that. Things that really happened. But in the providence and the creativity and the ingenuity of our Lord, we find that we can look to history and see within the symbols representations of spiritual realities. Does that make sense? I didn't realize how many big words I used there until after I said it. <laughs> we can see real events and we can say, wow, this is so much us spiritually. In the narrative... Uh, didn't mean to do that. In the narrative of 1 Samuel, we've ended on this tragedy last week. Basically, all the things that represent power and centrality of Israel has just been defeated. 
So to give you a contemporary illustration, this is in some ways like Washington, D.C. being occupied. Trump and Pence were taken out. The military disbanded. Maybe the Constitution and many of our national treasures are just taken by the enemy if they're not trashed and shredded. But then it just seems like the enemies are just content to stop there. Like there's kind of this unpleasant uninvited occupant in D.C. and really no news on what they plan next. Just a bunch of citizens worried, anxious, and wondering what's going to happen next. And I say this because this seems to be Israel's capital for all intents and purposes, Shiloh. It was likely raised by this army of the Philistines. And we know that Israel's army disbanded under defeat the closest thing to national human leaders that they had, The priests, the judge Eli and his two sons, they all died on the same day. But what's most amazing, jarring and scary is that the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. Now, the Ark represented the presence of God to the Israelites. And apparently other nations were privy to this because upon the Ark's entrance into battle, Coming into the Israelite camp during the war where Israel was defeated, we hear from the Philistines, we read up here, the Philistines were afraid and they said, a God has come into the camp and they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. But then we have a pep talk given likely by a Philistine general, and the the battle ensues, and then the unthinkable happens. Israel suffers defeat, and the ark is taken. For Israel, they, they might wonder, why did God let us get defeated? But now we're moving from the battle between nations, Philistia, where the Philistines come from, and Israel, to a battle between gods, Dagon and Yahweh. Verse 1 When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod is is one of the five major cities, the Pentopolis, five major cities of Philistia. And we're going to hear some of the other cities throughout this chapter. Ashdod is about 35 miles away from Ebenezer. That's where they have the battle. Ebenezer, they go 35 miles and carry the Ark of the Lord. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is a common practice in this day. Most nations had national gods. (laughs) So in some ways, in my illustration, suppose whatever nation invaded the U.S. uh, We knew it was Turkey. No, I don't know. (laughs) And then put up flags over D.C. That's kind of what's happening that's, that's its way of saying, hey, we're in charge, we defeated you, and you are now subjugated to us. That's what's happening here in Philistia with the ark. They're in essence saying, your God failed you, our God won, you are now completely conquered. Biblically speaking, we know that Dagon is just one of at least three gods that we're told about in the Bible that the Philistines worshipped. Uh, we seem to see that Dagon is their number one god. I guess they're Zeus, if you will, if they had a pantheon of gods. Some say that uh, he comes from a Hebrew word for fish. Others say that it's a Hebrew word for grain. So it could be a god of the fish. The Philistines were sea peoples. Could be a god of grains, as the Philistines were also farmers and agrarians. So they take the ark, 
And, and then that's what they seem, that's what they think to be Israel's God. This is just Ark here. This is where Israel's God resides. And they put it in the temple uh, in Ashdod next to Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward. So that is prostrated, bowing before, a position of adoration, if you will. That's what's happening. On the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now. One of the first stories I heard as a child in Sunday school was about this. No, not, not this. <laughs> um, was about um, a guy named David and a big giant named Goliath. And somehow, probably this wasn't told to me in Sunday school or children's church, I blotted out from my mind a, a rather gruesome episode in that story. First uh, Samuel 17 Tells us, so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over, stood over the Philistine, and took a sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. So David dismembers Goliath's head. And this was also kind of a common practice. Sometimes the head and the hands were removed. Well, the God that Goliath likely serves back here in Ashdod, because Goliath is a Philistine, just had his head and arms removed. (laughs) Kind of signifying that Yahweh is the victor, even in the enemy territory, even in the enemy God's temple, Yahweh is winning. (laughs) This is because whatever demonic forces were behind Dagon, the Philistines thought that they were just carting off a national lowercase god, but so they know that they, who they were referring to when they referred back to in chapter 3, the God who saved the Israelites from Egypt, that God shows up and he's not some national God. He's the one true God. And this is just the beginning of the panic that God is beginning to spread throughout the Philistines. We're told that the Philistines are so frightened that a new taboo, a new custom, a new superstition took place when it came to worshipers of Dagon. So so note already that thresholds in temples were already considered sacred because it marked separation between what you might call the the supernatural where our God resides and then the the commoner area. Well, because the statue of of Dagon's heads and arms ended up on this threshold area, it'd be kind of a just just skip or jump over that threshold game. You know, that's that's a black cat with a ladder. That's that's what's going on. And Yahweh has forever left his mark on Dagon. So much so that the author tells us of first Samuel that this is the custom to this day. Whenever first Samuel was written, my studying revealed that this custom remained the practice all the way even into the first century A.D. So we're talking about this is around. 1000 BC, so a thousand year practice thanks to just Yahweh bringing down this Dagon in the temple. But this show of power, this toppling over Dagon, as I said, is just the beginning of panic in Philistia. 
The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. So I hope you see now we're moving from God prevailing against a statue in Dagon to God is now prevailing against the Philistines. So the Philistines took down Israel in a war, but God's taking down the Philistines without even using people to do so. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors. If you have an NIV, likely there is a footnote telling you what the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint adds here, which may give us to insight what kind of tumors they are, says tumors and rats appeared in their land and there was death and destruction throughout the city. If the, the, the rats are related to the tumors that are spreading, many believe that this is an early case of bubonic plague. The plague was happening in Philistia and Ash, um, Ashdod. Don't use that word every day. Verse 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines. So these are likely five leaders of the five major cities in Philistia. They cooperate together probably in times of distress over the whole land. So the populace, hey, you guys need to have a meeting. And they said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. They didn't like Gath. No, just kidding. <laughs> Where Goliath is from. And Gath is another one of these five major cities in Philistia. So they brought the ark of God to, of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them, and again, the Septuagint would add actually with tumors in the groin. And I bring that up because the plague is known to have boils that centralize in the groin area along with the armpits. So it's probably the plague, we don't know. Verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, a third of the major cities of Philistia. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. So it's funny, things aren't even happening yet. They're like, wait, 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 we know what this is. What are you doing bringing this here? <laughs> they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. So the ark arrives to its third city. It's from, been from Ashdod to Gath and here in Ekron. And finally, all of Philistia is having enough. The Lord of the Philistines, whose first great idea was send it to another town, is finally called back after it's been through two other towns. And here is the new idea. Fine, let's send it back to Israel. So here was the idea when it had only been to one city. Their thinking was, we will prove to our people that this was just merely a coincidence. That the ark toppled down Dagon when at the same time a plague broke out in Ashdod. Well, let's just move this ark where the plague had been from Gath. And let's just assure our populace that it's not the ark doing all this. Well, when the plague broke out in Gath and now in Ekron, we now know it's not coincidence that this is Israel's God terrorizing us. And there's been this language. I wonder if you've heard it. 
<clears throat> the hand of God was heavy there. That was in verse 11. In verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. In verse 9, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. Consider this from the Exodus account. God tells Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Or, about one of the ten plagues of Egypt, Moses says, Behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. And then, also note this about the story back in 1 Samuel. That God is causing them to get in a very great panic or also in a deathly panic. When the Egyptian army is pursuing the Israelites into the Red Sea, chapter 14, right before the Israelites cross the Red Sea, we read that God threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So... The point is that it's likely that the author of 1 Samuel is bringing some key words out to remind us of the Exodus story. It's kind of like God is fulfilling the fears of the Philistines on the battlefield uh, when the ark first entered. I brought this up earlier. What did they say? Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Let me see if I can explain this to you. It's kind of... Wordy and complex, but I believe in you. <laughs> so we have the Israelites captive in Egypt. And God delivers them through Moses, inflicting plagues on the Egyptians in the process. Secondly, we have the Israelites defeated and the ark captive in Philistia. And we have God delivering himself from their captivity while inflicting plagues on Philistia in the process. Thirdly, we have God's people captive by their sin. And we have God delivering God's people from their captivity. And we see in places like Revelation 15 that God has plagues to inflict in His wrath on the disobedient. But when we talk about wrath and plagues and judgment for the disobedient, let's not forget God's purpose even in this. We'll see this as we finish verse 12 and head into verse 6 of our next chapter. We read in verse 12. The men who did not die, they survived, but were struck with tumors. <laughs> and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. So this is how long this has been going on. Seven also symbolically means complete. So the author could likely also be saying the Philistines are just done with Yahweh. <laughs> he has fulfilled his entire welcome there. And the Philistines called for the priests and diviners. So it's like our lords, the kings of the five cities, have given us advice. But now since we know we are dealing with primarily this God who has inflicted us so much pain, we need to talk to our God experts. And the Philistines said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? As in, how do we properly handle it so we don't bring more plagues on us? That might be the idea. Tell us with... What shall we send it to its place? They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, 
five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all of, on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? So again, we see that even the Philistines seem to be making this connection. Hey, Exodus 2.0 is happening in our land. Oh, no. So we kind of opened our study in 1 Samuel 5 saying this. When the enemy's nation's God is in your God's temple, it's over. (laughs) You've got your nation's flag on their capital. Here now we see the complete reversal. A few things to note here in 5.12. The Philistines have decided to pray to God, to Yahweh, to heaven. That's the terminology for God's abode, his throne. So the Philistines are saying, okay, Yahweh, stop it, save us. They're not even praying to Dagon. God's got their attention. Then we have the Philistine diviners saying, maybe we should make offerings to Yahweh. And then, kind of a climax, we know the Philistines are actually the ones suffering defeat here in verse 5. It is the advice of the diviners to give glory to the God of Israel. See, they're paying tribute to Yahweh. They're acknowledging His lordship over them. While the Philistines thought that they were the new lords over Israel, maybe they still are, but they certainly aren't the new lords over Yahweh. Yahweh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the only one true God that exists. That's the point here. So here's the plan that the diviners come up with. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on that way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has, done, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. Verse 12 And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left. In other words, they're focused. They're going that direction. Nothing's grabbing their attention. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the Philistines just had a cow. (laughs) Two, actually. (laughs) Sorry, had to do that. (laughs) So here's what's happening if you miss the odd details here. And I did because I'm not a rancher. (laughs) And I had to be told this by commentators, but you ranchers probably picked it up. Milk cows being yoked. Milk cows usually aren't trained for this sort of work. They couldn't really pull a cart together well. Then we have their calves separated from them. And the moment they begin to walk, you would expect them to be looking for their calves. (laughs) Nevertheless, when they were sent off, though they are lowing, probably wanting their calves, nevertheless, they're going the direction of Beth Shemesh. And the point of all this is that the diviners are trying to stack the deck, as it were, trying to do a Gideon and his fleece type test, as in, let's set up some uncommon, unnatural parameters. And if it goes this direction, namely, if we can get milk cows separated from their calves and pulling a cart in one direction, 
We're going to assume something supernatural is at work here. We're going to assume that Yahweh has been the one behind all of our plagues and he's giving his and we're giving his ark back to Israel. Does that make sense? And sure enough, they find out indeed he is. And here's what's just happened if you missed it. God just single handedly conquered the Philistines. Think about that. There was no invading army. There was no Moses this time around. There was nothing but just God bringing his plagues upon Philistia. There was just God toppling over a stupid statue and putting the plague on the citizens, creating terror to where they said, it's not worth it. (laughs) And for the Philistines, this means though we conquered Israel in a bloodbath, we had their ark. Now, without even so much as touching a battlefield, we are voluntarily handing back that ark to them. And so, what this is, with my illustration, is that the inviting army in the U.S. is going with their tumors and heaving down their flags and headed home. No blood on the battlefield, just, we were wrong, here's your nation back. And if that's not amazing enough, think about this. What does this mean for Israel? We'll see some of this in chapter 7, that Israel starts to repent and realizes the errors of their ways, but we have the end of chapter 6 to talk about next week also, that once back in Israel, even some Israelites die because of the presence of the ark. See, this is the angered dad, God is, who I don't know. He, he goes to the bar and he sets a few record straights with a bunch of drunkards who beat up his son. But then he comes back to his son and he isn't done yet. And he says, what were you doing at the bar in the first place? Some of us, we don't like. And for the wrong reasons, I might add, but we don't like it when God is angry with his sons and daughters. We're quick to play the victim and side with the victim. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness that those who have been trained by it. Here's what this means. After sermons like last week, or after like a a hard word from a friend, from the Holy Spirit, from the Bible, wherever and whoever the Spirit truly speaks to you, receive it, accept it, It means that God is treating you as his children. Israel loses their nation, their priests die, and then God single-handedly, without any human intervention, brings the Philistines to their knees as they come broken, beaten, and bruised. Here, take your God back. If it weren't for God, Israel would be done here and now. There would be no King David. There would be no primetime Israel. And here's what this tells me, what this reminds me of is the scandal of the gospel. 
See, God, Almighty of the universe, the universe maker, the star breather, the life giver, the sovereign Lord, nobody's saying to him, take me to your manager. The always existing one becomes flesh and yields and submits to and humbles himself to the point of death under a false jacked up trial. And then get this, he dies. He dies for our sake, for the sake of the kinds of people who killed him. And I say it, but it's hard to wrap your head around it, though, right? God's dying. Who killed him? His creation. Why do you let himself die to save us? But I I thought they're the ones who killed him. Yes. Do you hear the connection to the gospel back here in Samuel? Because just as God allowed the Israelites to die only to show his power through the ark, so Jesus let himself die only then to show the power of what God can do. God raised Jesus from the dead. And though the high priest paid people off to say that Jesus' disciples came and got him, we know that God showed his power by doing the same thing to death that Yahweh did to Dagon. He conquered death and he dismembered him. And just as God, through the ark, conquered the Philistine victors over a disobedient, ill-deserving Israel, so God also removes the sting of death And the punishment of sins and gives life to an ill-deserving, complacent, prodigal people. You and me. You and me. This is why in Ephesians 2, it doesn't end at verse 3. But it continues with two of the greatest words in all of human history. The two words where all of our hope lays at. It's where any hope lays at. But God. But God being rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, I'm just going to stop there because that's what you need to hear. It goes back to Hebrews, and you, and you know this if you're a parent, you discipline because you love. You discipline because you love. God disciplines because he loves Every ounce of guilt that you feel, every shame you experience under the heavy hand of God who convicts you in sin is an ounce of guilt, shame, and sorrow born from the very loving heart of God who says, I love you enough to not leave you where you're at. I don't want you to drown in fulfilling vain passions and worldly pursuits. I don't want you to spiral out of control seeking for pleasure you will never find in all your sins. I don't want you to live a broken down, depressed, oppressed, conquered life enslaved to your sins. Rather, I want you free. I want you free. And so we have a king who fights for his prodigals. We have a king fiercely jealous for his wayward people because they're his. We have a king who doesn't stop when the enemy wins and takes us captive, but rather, if our king has to, and he has to, he will single-handedly undo the conquest the enemies of his people just inflicted, and in turn, conquer them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, at times I come to you with my... Sins that I'm guilty of and and I'm even wondering then and there, well, is God's grace sufficient? Am I still saved? When here you are, you've been dealing with a people who haven't known you for years. You're dealing with a people who serve other gods. You're dealing with a people who are complacent. 
with a people who openly and blatantly build temples and forget you. And Father, you just single-handedly wiped out an entire nation that took them. And it's not because you want to be the one who punishes Israel, but it's because you love them. It's because you're not done with them. Father, many of us are prodigals, maybe in smaller ways, smaller ways than we think of the term of prodigal, because we, we prayed for some prodigal sons and daughters as well today. But Father, it helps us to take heart that you are working behind the scenes and that your measure of love towards your people is far beyond than what our threshold of love might be. Where we think you are quick to leave us, your word tells us that you're slow to anger. Father, we thank you that you love us that much. We thank you for all that you're willing to do, even the point of death and death on a cross, so that we might be saved from our sins. Help us to reflect you as we deal with the prodigals around us. Help us to not be quick to dismiss people, but to pray for them earnestly and to trust that you are working. And help us to work for their return as well, as James tells us we might save a life. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.